Great to see you all here. Obviously, an unusual Sunday. Uh, we've got a smaller crowd because of a couple of dozen women who are away at a retreat. So, even though we're bumbling along, and we're making it, but we, we, we want to get on the same page with the message. So this was like the best Sunday ever when they come back. And uh, that was Bill's suggestion. I think it's a great one. Okay, I'm Steve Coleman, one of the teachers here in Hope Chapel, and uh, it's terrific to have you here. I left this at my seat. How many children do we have? One, two? Oh, two lonely children. I have a paper for you that you can fill in and then welcome to show me. Unlike Julie, I don't have treats with me, but maybe I can rustle some up later. You know, I just can't help it. I have to, I have to do just as... I have to compete with Julie sometimes. That's all right. Good. All right. Sorry. So, since we're a nice cozy group, maybe we can have some interaction as this goes on. We'll see. Uh, Certainly, uh, there's a lot to talk about with this section that we've got. Very, very difficult passage. I'm not sure who assigned it to me. Yeah. (laughs) I actually took it on. I wanted to. Uh, These difficult things always intrigue me because I want to figure out what, what they're about. And so, that's the best way is to Commit to speaking on it, and then you have to really work through it. Before we get into that, uh, let me ask, have you ever felt as though you're not particularly important, or that other people seem to have more going for them than you did, Uh, particularly as a Christian, that uh, you're just another face in the crowd, or that other Christians have a better testimony, or more dynamic experience with God? It runs across my mind, has in the past. Uh, well, you know, this, this message is, is a great one. doesn't look like it on the surface, but it's got an unexpected twist at the end. So uh, first, let's do just a quick review. We've called Mark the big reveal because uh, his was the first gospel written. And so here somebody was for the first time writing down things about Jesus for an, uh, uh, readers that were outside of like the little room that person is talking in. And so it is the introduction of Christ. And we've seen that throughout uh, the book. We saw this theme in the first few chapters uh, when uh, his baptism and the crowd's amazement as his teaching. Remember that in the first few chapters? Are there other things you remember that sort of got revealed if you were just reading this book for the first time without a knowledge of Christ, just raise your hand if one comes to you. I'll just mention a couple of others if you don't think of one. Uh, and that is, um, he commanded demons, and you remember the crowds were amazed at that too. Uh, he brought healing to people, including raising a dead girl to life. And then blind Bartimaeus, there was also a, a, a guy that was deaf. Uh, 
Mark revealed that Jesus could feed 5,000 with just uh, two, uh, five loaves of bread and two small fish. And then we saw his power over nature, uh, in, and we saw that in his walking on the water. So just, uh, and then just a couple of chapters ago, he revealed Jesus as uh, the Messiah. That was Peter's declaration. And then we uh, read about his transfiguration. So there's no, no question that what Mark is talking about, what Mark is claiming, what he is um, revealing here is the very Messiah of Israel. So does anybody remember what we talked about last week? The what? Triumphal entry, that's right. We're really starting a, a, like the last act of Mark's gospel here. There's a real break at this point from, uh, actually blind Bartimaeus sort of leads into the triumphal entry, but, but the events there in chapter 10 and now chapter 11 as we go forward, we have the triumphal entry and uh, she did a great job in laying that out. I recommend you, you get that and listen to it. And the events we're going to talk about this morning come immediately after the triumphal entry. It's a difficult passage. I already said that, but we're sort of going to have, break it down, take it in chunks here. What did Jesus do? What was the meaning of his action? What did he teach? And we're going to stick with Mark's context. That's going to be enough for us this morning. I mean, there's, there's always that larger context you can talk about. We're going to try to see what is Mark trying to communicate with these events? What's the angle that he's emphasizing? All right, so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about your word. Uh, help us to see. Help us to understand Mark's angle here. Uh, help us learn more about you in the process, more about uh, this great salvation, this uh, incorporating us into your family, the forgiveness of sins, and your Holy Spirit. We thank you. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark 11. So listen for those three questions as we go through the text to get you oriented and started. The next day, we're starting in verse 12, Mark 11, 12. The next day, this would be the day after the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry ends with Jesus going into the temple, and it says he looked around the courts and then they went back to uh, Bethpage for the night. So the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, or Bethany they went to, sorry, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? 
The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Jesus remembered this and remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Okay, I just don't want to overlook the obvious here. Can anybody explain this fig tree thing for me? It would save us a lot of time this morning. Okay, all right. Um, well, let's, let's figure this out. Let's begin by looking at what Jesus did. What did he do? Well, the, the facts are simple because Mark is straightforward as he always is. Uh, Jesus looked at a fig tree with no fruit and said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. You have to notice its placement around the story of the temple. Remember in Mark how he sandwiches stories in order to help with the interpretation. We've seen that a number of times in Mark. Well, here, Mark makes it obvious uh, because he uses the chronology that we have two parts to the fig tree story, and they surround this clearing of the temple. So we've got to examine these events and keep that in mind, and I think it'll be a key to our understanding what Mark is getting at here. Something else to notice, it was a miracle. It happened in a day, in 24 hours. Whatever Peter saw about this root withering, that didn't seem to be the situation with the tree the day before. It wasn't re- remarkable. So there was, there was a miracle here of speed, apparently. Something happened. Also, it's important, I think, because Mark doesn't throw around details very lightly. And when he says, it withered from the root, uh, I, that doesn't generally happen with trees. You know, it's been warmer weather the last few days, and in a few weeks, we've got spring coming. And that's the time all of us are going to see trees around our neighborhood with bare limbs or branches near the top or fringes that are brown and dying. That's not how this tree withered. It withered from the roots. Usually we see trees like this, and, and they, uh, these things all die, and eventually you've got this scarecrow of a tree with just these limbs with no leaves on it standing there, and it stands there for 15 years until somebody gets around to cutting it down. Uh, but this one was different. So I think, because the focus is on the roots, the very heart of the tree, I think in my mind when I hear this, the same kind of situation as a Christmas tree. You know, you go out and you cut down this Christmas tree. Well, what you've done is severed it from its roots. 
Uh, sometimes, my children will point out, it's dead, but it doesn't know it yet. The roots are gone, done with. So I'm wondering if this tree, as they walk by it, going, going the next morning, if the roots were very obviously withered up, and yet some of the tree was still, at least some of it was still, still living, but with no roots, what was going to happen in short order? The thing was going to die. So that, that's how I envision it, not exactly like Christmas tree, but that idea that the death came to the root and the tree was going to catch up later. We don't know exactly what was seen, but that's what the word sort of seemed to suggest to me. All right, well, what about the temple? What are the observations there? One thing to note is that it is recorded in all four Gospels. So we could easily take all the, the accounts of cleansing the temple from all the Gospels and put them together and then say, oh, look, we add, add this and everything. Now we've got a complete account of this. But I want to see what Mark's trying to say here because so far the fig tree is pretty cryptic. Well, let's see what the temple uh, event is like. He went into the court of the Gentiles and began throwing out all the money changers and dove sailors. And believe me, they deserve to be thrown out. But you know, Jesus didn't go anywhere else, at least as recorded in Mark's gospel. He only mentions this one place where he stopped, the bustling market. Jesus did not clean out the court of Israel or the court of women. He did not find fault with the sacrifices going on at the bronze altar or the lampstand and showbread. What he did, he did there in the court of the Gentiles. He focused on the people selling in that court. Well, what was the court of the Gentiles? You have to uh, get a picture in your mind of the temple. And really, if you start right at the very heart of hearts of it. Uh, this is a drawing representing the, the temple, this big square, the temple area there in Jerusalem in Herod's day. This in the middle, of the, this, this rectangle's in the middle, and right in that rectangle is this great multi-story edifice. Well, that's the temple itself, the temple proper. So inside of the temple, you'd come into the holy place, and then there'd be this immense curtain, floor to ceiling, and behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant would be kept. That's where the presence of God was to be. And so then, so you have that at the heart, you come out one layer, and now you have the holy place where you have the uh, showbread and the candelabra uh, and the, uh, that's where the priests would do their work. Just outside of this, and on either side of the big edifice, is the area where the priests would be. I don't know if they called it the court of priests, but that was sort of the, the priest area. So one more step away, out in this area, on this side of this bronze altar here, is where is called the court of Israel. That's the court of the Israelite men. Because the next step out, sort of out in here, uh, is the court of the women. 
all within that rectangle. So we keep going out in like concentric circles. Now, this area where these colonnades are and up to this wall and this area over here, up this wall, that's the court of the Gentiles. They had the farthest out ring. If you got any further out and away from the temple, you'd be off the temple grounds. That's the court of the Gentile. Gentiles. Large, it's where a lot of teaching took place. And this is where the big marketplace was, where they were selling and everything. So if you get that picture in your mind, and of course it, it's, it's based on at least the difference between these courts in here where the Israelites would go and the court of the Gentiles is that difference between being part of the covenant people, part of the people of Israel, and then being a, a seeker, a God-fearing Greek or Roman. You could come to that court of the Gentiles and, uh, and uh, you know, worship, pray, so on. All right, so that's what, sort of what happened Jesus went to the court of the Gentiles throughout these money changers. So uh, what was the meaning of his actions? Well, we're going to get a start on this, but we're going to run into trouble. And uh, I'll show you where. So let's start with the temple. Uh, what was the meaning? Why did he do it? Well, the exchange of money and selling sacrifice animals was designed to cheat people. You know, it, it was designed to maximize profit. Let's say it that way. It makes a little more sense than talking about marketplace. But it was really exorbitant. Every turn you made, they wouldn't accept your money for the temple tax. You had to exchange it for, uh, and, and it was uh, from the city of Tyre, they, tend, they tended to standardize on a ty- Tyrian shekel. So you had to exchange for, for that. But their exchange rate was like, crazy high. Um, the, uh, you would bring maybe your animal for sacrifice from your hometown. You raised good ones, you picked from your flock that best one you came, and routinely it was the sort of the, re- the regular thing, the thing that was accepted was that the priest there would say, nope, not suitable. You have to buy one of the ones out in the market. And they would be at 25 times the cost. So that alone was a disgrace. But worse, this whole marketplace was being run by, in collusion with, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. They were making the profit on this thing. So, deserve to be gone, no question. You know, and people who have offered interpretations of this activity, uh, there's a range of them that you can you can read about uh, the leader's greediness, their lack of respect for God, exploiting the people, failure to believe in Jesus, which, and you know, it's sort of an all of the above. All these things were true. Is Mark trying to tell us something more specific here? That's my question. Sort of all of the above here, but it leaves us wondering what exactly Mark was trying to communicate to us. All right, how do we understand the miracle of the fig tree. Looking more closely, it, it isn't necessarily a simple miracle. People have pointed out, it's kind of a destructive miracle. And, and 
I've read people that say, it's the only destructive miracle that Christ ever performed. I take a little issue with that. Um, If you remember, he cast out demons into the pigs, into a whole herd of pigs, and the pigs all thundered down and and drowned. Now, Jesus didn't. I, I know what you're thinking. Jesus didn't make those pigs thunder down. But if you read that miracle... They, they say, first of all, something like, don't destroy us. And then they say, send us to those pigs over there. And Jesus says, go. So, you know, there, there is destruction connected with that, you know. Um, in the Old Testament, same thing happens. Jo, uh, Jonah, when he is um, uh, unhappy with God because the Ninevites repent and believe. Uh, so he sits on a hillside. And uh, the sun's beating down on him. But this God causes this little plant to grow that provides shade. And then the next day, God sent a little worm to eat the roots of that plant. So it withered. And Jonah gets even more sort of upset at God for all this. Well, again, a destruction of a plant. So uh, it's not the only destructive miracle, but it is kind of interesting because... Uh, there, there has to be a, a significant purpose if, uh, you know, why? Why that fig tree and why that way? Uh, well, um, and again, with the, with the clearing of the temple embedded in that story. So what about the fig tree might inform us about the temple? And looking at this, started thinking, you know, this... The actions of the, with the fig tree sound a little like a parable. There was a person he was, that was hungry and went to a fig tree and looking, lots of leaves but no fruit. And so he cursed the tree and went on his way hungry. It sort of reads a little like a parable. And so there's a suggestion here that Jesus sort of was acting out a parable for his disciples to help them understand what was going on, and help us readers later on to understand. Hypothesis. Let's take a look at it and see. How is the temple like a person looking for food? Here's a way we can test this. Well, if you're looking to fully worship God in the Old Testament, you'd want to go to the temple or the tabernacle if it was prior to the temple being built. Uh, the feasts, there were three of them that God uh, said you should travel to Jerusalem if you're able to celebrate these. Passover is one of them, the one that we're here now. So there's a spiritual food aspect that gets involved here. There's an, an, an ability to worship God fully. You can't offer sacrifices somewhere else. No other city where you're allowed to do that in. You did that at the temple. So the temple was the exclusive place to go. So um, let's look a little deeper here and take advantage of of reading what Jesus teaches here. What does Jesus teach about the temple? And what he said, it said, as he taught them, he said, "Is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What does robbing people have to do with prayer? 
Well, where's this writing from? It's from Isaiah 56. Let's take a look at that. The, the, the section we're, we're looking at right here is the very bottom verse. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But look what God says through Isaiah. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. For this is what the Lord says. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in, the, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's declaring his interest in, his love for, and his interest in the nations and wanted them to come, wants them to come to his holy nation, his, my holy mountain, my house of prayer, accepted on my altar. Well, you go to the temple. That's the center of uh, the religion here. And there's a reason you see all these my's here. And why is that? Because the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled. It is the one place on earth you could go to to get close to the presence of God. It's the one place he designated. And he had, and there was, a court of the Gentiles. And God's desire was that all nations would come to him. In the Old Testament, it's clear. Uh, All nations were to be blessed through Abraham. Moses, God told Moses, Israel is to be a nation of priests. The Messiah was predicted to be, as we say in Christmas sometimes, the light for the Gentiles. So this is not news, and they had this uh, court of the Gentiles. Well, let's take a look at uh, worship from this other angle, the presence of God. Well, the presence of God, we... we, uh, Uh, We first read about that in Exodus, where the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud came to guide Israel. And then once they had the tabernacle set up with the uh, Ark of the Covenant, his presence would rest there, unless Israel was going to be moving, in which case that pillar of fire or cloud by day would move and the camp of Israel would follow, only to, to then settle on the Holy of Holies. Uh, once they they settled. When Solomon's temple was built, uh, the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled that so much that the priests had to retreat out of that. And we read about uh, this presence of the Lord once in a while through the period of the kings. And then in the book of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel's being carried away in captivity, that exile from Jerusalem in uh, 600 B.C., that uh, he writes and talks about God's presence leaving Jerusalem. And we don't read about the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. We don't read about that in the times after 600 A.D. So there's no evidence of the presence of God until... Jesus, 
who was God clothed in human flesh. He was the presence of God. So, so it, now the presence of God is coming to the temple. And the one thing Jesus does, according to Mark, is clear out this noisy marketplace from the court of the Gentiles and says, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. That's God's heart. It was God's heart for the temple. And that's what, among all those other reasons, but that's what the leaders failed at. Whatever else they did, no interest in the Gentiles. No interest in the presence of God on this earth and what that's supposed to mean. And what the significance of the presence of God in the temple. If you remember back when you had the presence of God earlier, Moses encountered it at the burning bush. And he was told to take off his sandals because it was holy ground. That was lost. That's the root, the heart of these leaders that was withered already, that was gone. And that's what the parable is about. It's focusing on uh, for the disciples to see where there, there is the fruit, there's no fruit, then that means that root is withered. That means that the tree is dead already. See lots of good leaves, but it's dead already. Now here's the twist. I told you that at the beginning. Here's the interesting twist. And I know this is, none of this is brand new stuff, but it's kind of interesting how it, it weaves together. After the resurrection, uh, and I suppose technically after the, the, the Spirit came 50 days later, now the presence of God is inside of believers. And Jesus suggested that. He told uh, this larger group of disciples gathered, the kingdom of God is within you. And that's, that's what's worked out here in the New Testament time. God's presence is in you, and you, and you, and me. Well, the implications of that, you know, Paul calls us the temple of God's Spirit, and he has his own application for that. But there are lots of places now on earth you can go to get somewhere near the presence of God. Get close to any Christian. So here are the implications. First of all, the presence of God is not limited to one spot, so people, seekers, don't have to come there to uh, learn about God or to worship. We have the presence of God. We're a temple. So where we go, the presence of God goes with us. Where we go, it creates, in a sense, it, it creates a place of holy ground. Not that we're holy. That's not us. It's God's holiness. We're just the, the building that it's in. But it comes with us all the time. You know, the... Um, uh, at the Canadian border with the U.S. after 9-11, as they were developing their sensors, you know, to watch for nuclear material, that sort of thing. Uh, kindly, older couples were triggering the sensors. And so the border people take them in and start grilling them, and they would find out one or the other of them had cancer and was going through chemotherapy. And the isotopes... 
that ended up in their bloodstream as a result of that chemotherapy was enough to set off the device. Now, nobody sees it. We can sit next to them and, you know, that radiation is not going to hurt you. But everywhere they went was this little radioactivity. And that's what it's like with us. Everywhere we go, there's that presence of God. And so if God wants the Gentiles to come to know Him, well, He just puts us out there in the way of the person that needs the presence of God in their life in some way, whether it's that act of love or the kind word or a more direct word, whatever, however He works those circumstances. And so every step we take, we're doing something holy. Everything we say is an eternal thing because it has the possibility of impacting an eternal soul. Uh, the Jews missed that heart of Jesus. Uh, and so, um, and they were that root that was withered. Uh, and for us, uh, he has made us alive in him and given us that, um, that calling to bring into every situation his presence. And, uh, and that's why, even though we feel, we can feel like, oh, I, don't, I don't have much of an impact, I don't do much, you know, we can't really directly affect those feelings. We have to hang on to the reality, the truth, that that's what God has done. So we have that presence within us. Chosen us, have chosen to use us, and Lord, on Monday and the days following, we want to be used by you. We want you to place us in the right places and in contact with the right people to, uh, to bring your love to them. We thank you so much. Dismiss us with your blessing in your name. Amen.